Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from the Central Verse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard, and today is episode number 15. Now, the last few months have been very busy for the Federal Reserve itself and for those of us that, that track it, from ethics scandals and resignations to the multiple vacancies at the board and the horse race to fill those seats to inflation and the beginning of the end of the COVID-era bond purchases. Uh, and that's clearly not, uh, not even everything. But, uh, but today, we're going to zoom out. We're going to try and zoom out way out uh, to look at the Fed in 2030 or in a, a distant but imaginable future. Uh, so where's the Fed going? Where should it be going? Uh, big picture kind of stuff. And to think all of this through with me today, I am delighted to have Matt Iglesias with me. Welcome, Matt. Hi, good to be here. So Matt is uh, an all-around policy thinker and writer, of course, most recently at his newsletter, uh, Slow Boring. Um, and although the scope of Matt's coverage is, is huge, um, I think he revealed his true love for Fed policy his final week on the weeds doing those two episodes. So before <laughs> we dive, uh, dive into the kind of Fed in 2030, Matt, I wanted to start by just asking what, what, uh, what draws you to... Uh, or, or is particularly interesting um, about Fed policy, maybe in comparison to the, the rest of the, of the policy world? Sure. Um, you know, this is a Fed podcast, so it doesn't it make a ton of sense to, to tell people listening to it already that I think <laughs> the Fed is underrated. But, you know, um, if you had people who were interested in the law, right, and they only spent 1% of their time thinking about the Supreme Court, you'd be like, that's that's weird, right? And like, we don't yeah. do it that way. Like if anything, it's the opposite. It's like the really smart thing to say about judicial politics is that like, there's more to it than the Supreme right. Court. Yeah. The Supreme Court is where you start because those nine people, they have a lot of power and it's a, it's a first tier political issue, right? When people are thinking, am I gonna vote for Donald Trump or am I gonna vote for Joe Biden? Supreme Court nominations weighs heavily on that. And all the interest groups in politics, they care a lot about the judicial nominations. My mind was blown uh, when Barack Obama's was president in 2009, 2010, you know, early administration, everybody cared so much about the macro economy, right? I mean, that was like the predominant political issue of the day. And yet there were like vacancies going unfilled. If you would ask people in the administration, you'd be like, what's up, you know, like quantitative easing, what's going to be, well, we don't talk about monetary policy. Yeah. Yep. And if you talk, you know, I, I live in DC, I'm like very uh, embedded in the world of, you know, political influencers and institutions and like none of them cared like there was no full-time person at any think tank like doing work on monetary policy now there yeah. is a little bit uh, at brookings thanks to the um what's it called hutchins center um yeah. you know and mercatus has a little thing now but it, it was just kind of left in this realm of like ha ha ha, monetary policy, how obscure, you know, as if I was talking about uh, the CFTC or, yeah. you know, there's a lot of weird government agencies. Um, but like the fundamental thing about the Fed, you know, this was, I think, Trotsky's joke about the dialectic, but it's like, whether or not you think it's interesting, <laughs> um, the impact of macroeconomic policy on you is dramatic. And that's true if you're just a person trying to live your life, but it's really true if you are a political entrepreneur, right? Like, um, if the economy, if economic growth had been more robust in 2010, um, 
those, sorry, if economic growth had been more robust in 2010, if there'd been that kind of sharp comeback, V-shaped recovery that Obama had wanted to see, like his whole project would have gone way better. And yeah. everything that anyone who like wanted him to be an effective president would have benefited from. And you see the, I don't want to say it's the opposite exactly, but it's, you know, Biden's presidency now is clearly being dragged down by concern about the big picture economic situation, which has problems that are completely different from the problems of 2009, but they are still problems. People are upset about them. And right. it is hard now for the White House to get everyone like really excited about their infrastructure bill because everyone's like, eh, you know, beef costs 7% more than it did last month. Yep. Um, and so like, this is like the core of what people want from the government is like stable but robust economic growth and monetary policy is the way that we do it um it's it's a little bit uh, deliberately obscure sure. as an institutional design i mean that's yep. part of the idea um but as a journalist i sort of want to try to convey that to people yeah absolutely yeah that that's awesome i think that uh comparison is good uh, as well in the, the thinking about how different areas are covered uh, and the Fed, you know, hasn't historically been particularly uh, uh, self, um, doesn't do a lot of self-inspection, although recently has done a little bit more mm -hmm. and more that we've been able to see. So to take our kind of our first look into long-term, uh, long-term uh, long Fed, uh, the the most recent example of that kind of internal uh, inspection is this this new framework, mm -hmm. this flexible average inflation targeting that, like like you said, the audience doesn't need a reminder of what that is. But uh, you know, it it's it's one big part, probably the biggest part, but not the whole part of a kind of broader what I've almost called, and I, I probably didn't think I wasn't the first to think this, but kind of a, almost a spiritual conversion, uh, you know, happening at the Fed. And, uh, you know, shifting in, put over simplistically, shifting away from uh, overreacting to inflation at the mm -hmm. risk of, of, of missing unemployment to, to maybe the opposite. Um, and so as we think through uh, that, you know, this, this new framework has been put to the test much quicker than I think they hoped uh, and, and for policy's sake would have, would have been good. But, uh, but what are some things about the successor that will make the, this new framework successful or, or not um, in this kind of medium term range that we're thinking about? What are, what are you looking at when you're thinking I mean, what will be successful or not? I think that we're going to look back on fate and see that it was a fighting the last war kind of okay. thing. And I am hoping that we don't then ping pong all the way back in the other direction uh, because fate was inspired by a real insight, right? Which was that this sort of prior doctrine, I would say of like preventative monetary tightening where yeah. you would say, oh, um, like the conditions are right such that inflation might go above 2%. And so we need to head that off. Or you would look, I mean, you could tell in 2014, 15, I would say, if you talk to people, at the staff level, people in the banking world, there was like a yearning to normalize. Yeah. And the question yep. was, was like, well, can we survive normalizing monetary policy, right? Like, is it, and if you, if you wanted to make the case against normalization, you would have to paint a very convincing story of gloom and doom. And they would say, well, you know, it's like the unemployment rate is, is down low. And, and I think that that was very problematic, that an economy, 
taxonomy needs uh, upside growth. You can't just alternate between recession conditions and not a recession. Right. You need to have you need to have some some boom with the bust. You need to, I mean, or, or ideally, just have totally Pure stable boom. growth all the time or something. <laughs> right. um, but you know, you you don't want to be. Um, uh, the, like the joke about taking away the punch bowl before the party gets started is kind of funny. And I think it flattered um, some people's self-conception of sure. what they were, but like you wouldn't want to run a party like that. That's not actually <laughs> how you host a party. Um, and it's true. Like it is, it is difficult to let people drink punch, but try to not let them get too drunk, but also not ruin the party. Um, but there was, there was too much, too much party pooping happening. Yeah. Um, fate, I think is a little bit confusing. Like it's hard to explain it to somebody who has not like read all the documents, Who and I, I and, and I think it's confusing in part because it's um, it, you know, it's just genuinely not clear, right? Like it has as its first word flexible, yep. and is a little bit of like, well, we'll figure it out. Um, and now we are in a situation where you see the problems with front-loading flexibility, which yeah. is not, I think, so much that we had inflation of, what was it? It's like 6% year on year in that last print. Yep. Um, it's not that that is the end of the world, but it is higher than what the Fed said it was going to be. Yep. And so when you combine front-loading flexibility and discretion with forecast error, you now have a lot of people who are saying, well, well, what does this mean, right? If the forecast had been that this policy would produce this much inflation, would the policy have been different from the policy they actually followed? And if it's true that an accurate forecast would have led to a different policy. Shouldn't the blown forecast lead to a different policy now? And that to me is a, that, that's like a logical argument that yep. I can make to you, but I don't know that it's what fate says they should do. And there's another view that says, no, they've now committed to delaying rate hikes. And so they have to sort of see that through no matter what happens. And that, it seems risky in both directions. And it turns out, I mean, long story short, sure. they've given themselves a framework that does not provide an answer to the question of what should we do if our forecasts lowball inflation, right? It had been a really long time <laughs> since the Fed had lowballed an inflation forecast. So I think nobody was, that wasn't like front of mind, you know, like, well, what do we do if that happens? Sure. Um, because it's a different kind of situation, but you know, ideally you want a doctrine that provides guidance in all kinds of scenarios, right? right. As long as right. you are publishing forecasts, right? There is a chance that your forecast will err in either direction. There's a chance that there's gonna be something wrong with your model and your forecast will err for a number of times in the wrong direction. And yep. what they sort of did was they built a forecast that was, they built a, a framework that was so heavily grounded in the reality of constantly overestimating inflation. Yeah. Um, but of course, you, you don't want to constantly overestimate inflation and then have a policy framework to deal with that. You, you want your modeling to be as good as possible. And then you want your policy framework to address errors um, 
that occur in all directions. Because now, you know, you listen to people saying, I mean, my personal inflation forecasts from a year ago were terrible. Um, In my defense, my main view of it was that it was very unlikely that the Fed staff was going to be airing off as badly well. low on it. Like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm just some guy, right? Sure, um, sure. But so, but so now you listen to what Powell says, what other people say, and they have like all these reasons why the inflation has been high. And those seem like reasonable explanations. There, there was a big pandemic, you know, this chips thing, like it's all real. But then the question is, well, why didn't you know that last winter? Right. I mean, I didn't know it because I was reading your uh, PDFs. Um, but like, why didn't Jay Powell know, right? Like, like, what are they all doing there? Um, and you know, they're smart people and they, they work hard, but even now I've seen people, um, people who, who haven't followed monetary policy that long, uh, political journalists are getting more interested in this. And so they'll say, well, you know, this forecast from Goldman Sachs came out yesterday and it sees blah, blah, blah happening and and this, that, and the other thing. I I don't know how much fully independent uh, research goes into those investment bank notes, but my impression is that it's not that much, that broadly speaking, what they're doing is they are assuming that inflation will converge to the Fed's target, and then they're making the other variables like conform to that assumption. And so they're telling us, they are saying that they have confidence in the Fed, and here's what you as an investor should know follows from the fact that inflation is going to slow over the next two, three years. but the question that people who are worried have is like, is that confidence warranted? Right. Um, and I'm not saying it shouldn't be exactly, but the framework um, opens you up to that question because yeah. it doesn't say how long do you be flexible? It doesn't say, you know, average what, right? Versus a yep. level target would say, catch up inflation is fine, but we caught up. And like, now we need to slow, like right away, Um, which there would be problems with that, but also we would have seen it coming, right? If that had been the articulated policy. Right. And that communication uh, might have been different. And so this, this idea of the the framework itself affects uh, the policy today and then the combination of the frameworks and uh, the models and the economic projections, it's that combination that makes it worth it, uh, the kind of Fed policy goes. So, uh, you know, given this, uh, these, these challenges, uh, you know, the, this, the, the buildup, the run-up to, mm-hmm. to fate's announcement uh, was, was, was really big, right? It was long, mm-hmm. they did a whole road show, uh, the, to the, the degree to which um, that was for show versus uh, it, it, the degree that it if, uh, impacted the actual, uh, you know, published and announced framework, I think is, is, is unclear. Um, but as they, you know, they, they promised to do a similar framework review process again uh, in, in, in five, every five years is what the, is what, is what it said. So as they are thinking about these issues and the very ones that you're, that you're talking about, I guess what other stuff um, or what other angles of the framework review um, in general and this next one in five years uh, should we be thinking about? Well, so, I mean, I think a big one that that they are going to have to look at is what are we going to, and I think we just sincerely don't know now, but we will know in, okay, in a few sure. more years, is how does... Um, 
labor market sort of tightness relate to real wages that I think a lot of us developed the opinion. And I think the Fed did. I think this helped inspire fate was that labor market slack had been reducing real wages um, and that running a sort of a more high pressure economy with more bargaining power would really help workers. Um, If you look at what's happened in 2021, that is called into question, that we've had strong employment growth, but we've had falling real wages. Um, And if I remember, you know, uh, like a dusty undergraduate textbook, I do think that's what it said, right? Was that um, stimulative policy increases employment by reducing real wages. Um, So if you think that that's true, I think that has somewhat different implications for how you should think about these things. I'm also not sure that the evidence of this year really backs that up. Uh, We know, you know, oil prices are just much more flexible than wage rates. So you can have, uh, I I forget exactly, but, but you know, in the short term, real compensation is dominated by changes in oil prices rather than uh, by changes in the labor market. Uh, But in the long term, like that's not true, right? Like oil supply is dominated by technological innovations and the labor market is a totally unrelated thing. Uh, so, I mean, I think we're going to want to reassess in 2022, 23, 24, what has happened to um real compensation as a result of sort of tighter labor markets. And I do think we see evidence that we're seeing wage compression this year, um, that, you know, wages are disproportionately rising at the at the low end, that there is now a real market value to being an experienced worker with a demonstrated ability to show up on time every day. Um, You know what I mean? Like, which, which is good. I mean, I think that if people think about we often get sort of nostalgia for the economy that existed in in the 50s and 60s. And people debate, you know, what was that about, right? Is it something specific about manufacturing? Um, And I think that some of it is this like, just solid citizen premium, right? That like when workers are scarce in general, you both, you got to take a risk, you know, on like teenagers or ex-cons or people with huge gaps in the resume, which is good for society. But it also means that even if you've never like acquired really exotic skills, but you're like a person who has been working solidly and shows up every day and does what you're supposed to do, that people really want people like that, you know, in a a labor market. And that's something that I think, um, fits sort of most people's conception of how society should should work, that people who work hard and play by the rules should do well, um, even if they, you know, didn't have incredibly high SAT scores uh, or or whatever else. So we'll have to kind of see how that that plays out. Um, Then, you know, I I think there's a question around communications and frameworks. Um, I have found the idea of NGDP level targeting to be pretty compelling ever since I came to understand it. Uh, My understanding when I, when I talked about this with policymakers is that they feel it is way too confusing, that it's like too weird and they don't want to try to explain it to people. My feeling is that it's true that the learning curve is a little bit steeper initially because you have to explain an unfamiliar word. But that once it's out there, it's actually a lot easier to explain what it is you're doing. 
Yeah. But like you're, you're tracking economy-wide nominal income and you're trying to stabilize its growth path is like a pretty simple explanation of like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Whereas, well, we're going to be more flexible with the inflation targeting than we used to is like an easy sentence to say. Right. And you can then, as a journalist, you can write it in the lead. It's like, the Fed is going to be more flexible with the inflation targeting. But yep. like, what does that mean? Right. Right. I think it's like deeply unclear that like you can write about this for years. You can have read all the articles. You can have seen the briefing documents, the speeches. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know what that says. Um, So I think in terms of my personal preference, at least in terms of clarity, would be to downweight, like how easy is it to explain the first time? Yeah. And like upweight. How easy is it to explain your month-to-month decision-making with reference to uh, the framework, right? Yep. And, and to some extent, that's like how rule-bound versus discretionary are you? Uh, but I also just think it's like how, how specific are you about the variables that you are tracking and right. why? I think that there is a, a problem. I, I think that a problem with inflation targeting in general is that um, macroeconomists think that commodity price swings are the least relevant kind of inflation, right. but citizens think it's the most relevant kind of inflation. So yep. you always sound like an idiot yeah, if you're standing in front of people and yeah. you're being like, the gas and food that you buy multiple times a week, every week, and that also your family has no good substitute for, like that's not important. What I'm really here to tell you about is the imputed rent on your house that you don't actually pay, right? Yeah. Like that's, I, I just, I, I always think that that's like a, a setup for, for catastrophe. And yeah. even though it's a familiar word that actually moving to a different concept, in, precisely because NGDP is so exotic, Nobody's going to be like, well, what the fuck? You know, what? <laughs> yep, yep, where's yep. my gasoline? You know, yep, but if yep. you're like prices, people are like, yeah, prices, the prices of the things that I buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and since that's not actually what central banks care about, it's, it's, it's very problematic. So in this, so, and, and, and I think that's, that's huge. I think that goes into it. Uh, big time. I think that's an awesome point about, you know, the different degrees of communication, the different stages of communication and not, uh, getting too caught up in uh, in that that front loading part of describing what the the idea of the of the framework is, you know, what do you? Th- the Fed has made a lot of changes in in how they've talked and and who they're talking to. I mean, I mm-hmm. you know the, remember the early you know I maybe ten years ago, but maybe less uh, the the Fed up folks getting an interview. Yep. You know, at, at Jackson Hole and like that being a really big deal, and mm-hmm. uh, you know just these these. You know, the, the, there again, the tour that they went on uh, doing all these conferences as the, as the framework um, review was going on. Um, you know, h- how going forward, how much should decisions, big decisions about things like what is the operating framework going to be for us making policy, how much should the Fed take in those kind of common views uh, and and how much should they just do kind of choose the the policy that they think is going to be most effective for the general economy and worry about the that the success of that policy will explain itself through coupled with the people that are making big decisions hopefully you know have enough people with enough time to really grasp it 
almost no matter how complicated um, it is. So as they're thinking about this, you know, this next round of of decisions, how much should they weigh these different audiences that the Fed has to speak to? I mean, you do, you, you want to try to create good outcomes, first and foremost. I mean, I appreciate the uh, moves toward openness that sure. um, uh, Janet Yellen took and that yeah. Jay Powell has taken. But I think if you want to understand the genesis of that, right, it's Alan Greenspan got away with running an incredibly Mysterian Fed uh, sure. because because the outcomes were really good. Yeah. And yeah. under Ben Bernanke, the outcomes got a lot worse. So <laughs> yeah. there was a so there was a lot more pressure sure. to like explain what was happening. Yeah. And Yellen and Powell have effectively, I think, rebuilt um, some of the Fed's legitimacy through those efforts. But now we have the question um, into, into Powell's tenure, into this difficult time of, are we going to get the good outcomes, right? Yeah. And yeah. ultimately, that is going to drive um, the institutional legitimacy more than anything else. Yeah. I do think that communication matters, though, because um, at least as best we understand it, a really important thing that the Fed does is impact um, financial markets, which yeah. then have a downstream impact on things. So you want to be clear about what you are saying. Um, you want to avoid wild spikes in financial markets. And most of all, mm -hmm. ideally, you know, the, the best policies are almost self-executing yeah. uh, because, you know, if, if like um, people feel that the Fed will stabilize outcomes. So you as a trader should react to every development as if the Fed has done something to stabilize the outcome, then the outcomes end up being stable. Uh, mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's important to be clear. This is where I do think that like communicating directly with the man on the street is not that important yeah. as communicating yep. clearly to the people who are most interested. Yeah. Like, like what you're doing. This is again, awesome. why, why I think they're wrong about, about like nominal income is too confusing is that, you know, we're talking about like 12 journalists who you yeah. can get in a room yeah. and walk through it in great detail. Um, and they and their editors can figure out how to explain it to their audiences. Like that, that's honestly what we do as journalists. Yeah. yeah. Um, the problem with fate, it is hard as a journalist to fully explain fate to your audience because it is just it, it under explains what yeah. the Fed is doing. It's like, I, I think as, as a reader, you don't always know. It's like, is this unclear because the article was poorly written or is it unclear because the thing is actually unclear? Right. And, you know, I do think that the guys who are primarily on the, the beat, um, like they don't want to be mean. Sure. And, and sure. say like in the fifth graph, like if you don't totally understand this, it's because it doesn't really make sense. Um, but like, I, I think that there's an element of that going on. It's like, there's no, there's no level of knowledge or like textbooks or elaborate models that is going to get you a clear um, answer here. And in that sense, it's a step back toward uh, uh, the maestro, you know, kind of model of, of a Fed chairmanship, sure. which, I mean, it worked for Greenspan. I mean, he retired as a really celebrated public oh, yeah. figure, um, yeah. but it's a, it's, it's like, that's, that's quite the high wire act. And I don't know that it's the best course of action for everybody to take all that responsibility onto their shoulders where it's just like, we'll figure it out guys.
absolutely yeah okay so uh so we'll have we'll have a, we'll have two of those framework reviews in the next in the next decade uh and so uh, those are great thoughts to be thinking about there we're going to shift gears a little bit to to yeah, something yeah. that is particularly interesting post covid and that is the uh the kind of monetary and fiscal uh cooperation and coordination and you know i guess i i'm i'm interested in hearing your thoughts i guess first off on uh on on the covid you know mm-hmm. stuff and kind of broke new ground there and it's not just treasury and fed but it's treasury and fed and congress and 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 the white house just this degree of uh, of of working together um, and kind of frame that in the looking forward. Did it make lasting changes or did it just make a change so that we can maybe expect that if there's another major crisis um, or, you know, is it something that we should uh, expect in more kind of quote unquote peace times? And is that good? So there's it's, a lot wrapped in there, but. It's good to see coordination in it crisis. I mean, as much as um, there have been a lot of problems in America over whatever the past couple of years. um, But one thing that did happen in a moment of serious crisis uh, on the economic front, but not on the public health front. Yeah, on the the economic front, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin and Jay Powell really got together and they did some things, right? And there was stuff that the Fed felt that it should do, but they also felt that they lacked statutory authorization to do it. And they communicated that to Congress and Congress passed laws. And that is good. That is how the government is supposed to work. (laughs) Um, On the core public health, function of the government, we saw the alternative to that, where there's something to be said for an FDA operating independently of the White House. And there's something to be said for federalism and for checks and balances and for all those things. But if you were to step back and ask, like, what was the policy of the United States of America toward the SARS-CoV-2 virus? And it's like, I don't know, right? It was like Trump had some policies, members of his administration had some other policies, governors had some other policies, Congress um, and the White House had a fundamental disagreement as to whether a large swath of the labor market should be mothballed and sort of- paid off or not. And so like the actual policy just swung. And so it's like for several months, we had the bonus unemployment insurance and then it went away and then it came back and it's coming and going had nothing to do with CDC guidance <laughs> or objective virus metrics, right? So like, that's really bad. And it's it's good that the economic policy didn't have that quality. Um, you know, I think the question is, is how can we uh, improve on um the dynamic where Congress does fiscal policy because interest rates are so low. And then that kind of tosses a hot potato to the Fed in which we are then not 100% sure what's supposed to happen next. Um, You know, so in the 2009 stimulus, as it happens, like they spent less money than a crude calculation of uh, the output gap would suggest that they should have. So it didn't pose any question at all for the Fed. Um, But data is subject to revision. Um, Congress is not 
prescient uh, political as well as economic factors go into discretionary fiscal stimulus. So it's not like crazy that Congress passed a bill that like more than fully filled the hole sure. there. They had sure. reasons for wanting to do that, but it raises the question like, like what is supposed to happen to monetary policy when that happens, right? Like one view is, well, monetary policy will tighten to offset it. So fiscal policy is ineffective. Right? I mean, right. that was something yep. I, I, when yep. I was early in my career, people used to say, it's like discretionary fiscal policy is out the door because the Fed moves last and you have monetary dominance. Um, so that's not what happened in, in yep. 2021. Right. Um, it could have happened, but it didn't. Right. Um, and it didn't by design, right? In part because of fate, but in part because I think it would have been seen as inappropriate. Right. For Powell yeah. to just like stomp on um, an act of Congress like that. He yeah. didn't weigh in and endorse ARP, but he yeah. also wasn't like, hey, guys, don't do this. Right. Um, yeah. But then that raised the question of, well, was he just trying to be nice or is that itself the Fed's doctrine? I mean, because again, because Greenspan uh, was quite vocal about fiscal policy, right? That was part of, part of the maestro reaching his like, full self-fulfillment is that he would dictate policy to Congress, um, right. which I think is not how the political system is supposed to work, but it was, um, but I do think it was understood in, in there's this famous, right? Uh, James Carville says like, when I die, I want to be reincarnated as the bond market, um, right. you know, because the, the <laughs> understanding of the political economy of the nineties was that the Fed dominated macro policy and what you could do in the administration of Congress is micro policy. And um, I think that if you pair that with a more rules-based monetary framework, there's something appealing about yeah, that, sure. right? To say that, look, like, um, you know, we are going, the Fed is going to stabilize output, stabilize nominal output. Um, and what you guys can do is, you know, make the ports more efficient or right. improve labor market participation or improve the skill mix of our immigrants or improve the education system or get rid of anti-competitive regulations or impose pro-competitive regulations on monopolies, right? And that like, we're just doing nominal growth and like how much inflation we get, like that's up to you. Sure. Um, could be a reasonable division of labor, or you can shade into, I think, some of the stuff the European Central Bank uh, was pulling, which is like, <laughs> we're going to shoot a death ray at your economy unless yeah. you do labor market reforms that like we like, but your electorate doesn't, mm -hmm. um, which I think was like, th like, that was really bad. That was a bad moment um, for democratic governance and has... You know, I sort of wrecked the European project, I think, in, in important um, and kind huge. of disturbing ways. Um, yep. Last, I mean, if we are going to do this thing of direct fiscal transfers to households, um, which I think there's a reason to do it. Sure. Um, but there, I think you really ought to try to institutionalize yeah. um, Fed Treasury coordination. Like potentially you could just formally send that power to the Fed, right? To say, look, if you feel that manipulating um, the federal funds rate is ineffective or undesirable or at the lower bound, like this other button you can press yep. is like yep. the one where everybody gets $100. Um, yep. Having Congress do it um, 
I mean, there's just like a lot of traditional reasons why Congress hasn't done stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we let it fall by the wayside due to the pandemic emergency, but it was both like very effective and is also weird kind of tool to have lying around. And that to me is the kind of thing that like I feel more comfortable with uh, in the walled garden of, of the technocrats who could sure. say, look, here's this like a specific reason where we're going to do this. And like everybody's yeah. going to get $250 or the way Claudia Sam originally proposed it was Correct. to have it um, pegged to a trigger. Uh, to, 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 to a, right, a specific labor market metric. So something like that seems like the, the good kind of fiscal monetary coordination. Yeah. Um, We've just we've had this tremendous fall in equilibrium interest rates that has turned the zero lower bound from this kind of like goofy what if to just like every time anything happens. So we, we need to think about more fiscal monetary coordination in that world. Yeah. And uh, I guess so is most last question on this on this topic, and that is, you know, is this a conversation that should be having this should be being had, you know, in in Congress mostly. And is is that is that the the imagination that this would have to be some kind of law and, and a debate about that? Is it something that you think the the Treasury and the Fed could just you know work together and just announce that hey, this is a new strategy think, and 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 where would those start and where do you think? That would I be? think that it would be no. I mean, I think that the Fed leadership needs to talk to members of Congress, you know, yeah. on a bipartisan basis. And also yeah. talk to the Congressional Budget Office sure. yeah. about oh, this. Yeah. Because every time automatic stabilizers comes up on the Hill, I start hearing these like complaints about CBO and CBO mm-hmm. scores. I don't totally understand um, yeah. what those complaints amount to. What is true is that if you look at a CBO forecast, um, they, they do 10 year ahead forecasts and they never forecast that there will be a recession uh, <laughs> with, within the next 10 years. Sure. So preventing a recession has no like scorable yeah. value, right? On that cost but obviously yeah. the whole point of automatic <laughs> physical stabilizers would be to prevent recessions, right? Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly why they do it that way. Um, you know what what their concerns are, their own perception of of their role. But like, if we can all agree that preventing recessions would in fact be a valuable social um, activity, like we should get the people in the room to sort of understand what their broad concerns are. Um, you know, and Republicans and Democrats might have different ideas of like what an appropriate fiscal stabilizer uh, would look like that's automatic. Sure. Um, sure. But if we got to a point of like a partisan deadlock, where it's like both sides would like to do this, but yeah. have different opinions on how it should be done, you can just have gridlock for years. You can also have one party wins an election and does what they want, or you can have a bipartisan compromise. Right now, I feel like we're in none of those yeah, states, right? Where it's just like an unripened, a handful of idiosyncratic members of Congress have this on their radar, but the leadership thinks it's annoying. Yeah. Um, they think uh-huh. it scores badly. The CBO people think they're being scapegoated. <laughs> and, the, and the Fed is like, yeah, you know, I mean- Publicly, not much. Right. Um, and, yeah. and so, you know, this is also easier to do if there isn't an imminent crisis. Like come up with a way to tuck it into some, you know, regular appropriation bill that happens sometimes somewhere. Um, Brookings put out this, uh, Hamilton Project 
which I guess is part of Brookings, did this great book uh, a few years ago that was like full of automatic stabilizer yeah. motions. Um, but that just goes to show it's not that hard to draw plans for this. What is hard is to like get people focused on yeah. like what's the, what's the actual objection here and you know, how can we solve the problem? Yeah, get the machinery to, to, to address it. Uh, okay, so the next one is is related, and that is I'm putting air quotes around the word other. It's mm-hmm. like other jobs, right? That that people oh, yeah. all, people also in air quotes, uh, you know, want the Fed, uh, the green Fed, the the many things. Yeah. Ex- yeah, exactly. And so you know, and and you know, three that come top of mind, uh, you know, climate and wealth inequality, racial inequality. There are these things that many people that are passionate about each of those issues will say it clearly falls within the Fed's current mandate. And then those on other sides will say it clearly does not. Uh, so, and, and you're welcome to respond to any of these separately and, and, and in, uh, you know, individually. Uh, but just in general, in the next decade, you know, how should we be thinking about these other jobs that, that the Fed uh, is being asked by some to do and told not to do uh, by others? How should the Fed do it? What are they doing? And kind of where do you see that going? So, I mean, the, the climate one, you know, I think conceptually, it sort of, it, it puts the cart before the horse, right? Okay. If we had a political consensus that the United States of America was going on a war footing to combat climate change, yeah, having the Fed play an important role in that would make a lot of sense, just as the Fed played a critical role in World War II finance. But we don't have that political Mm -hmm. consensus. So to ask the Fed to act as if there was a strong political consensus in favor of the Fed selectively financing clean energy projects when there clearly isn't, is like pointless, right? Um, Now, if the situation was that Joe Manchin was actually like a Green New Deal fanatic, <laughs> but but was really worried about how things would look to his voters back home. Okay. Maybe something he could do is like green light some Fed nominees mm-hmm. who would yeah. go do super aggressive green policy. And then he'd be like, oh man, you shouldn't not have done my, that. Not my job, uh, yeah. But, you, but that's not, he is not that, shady of a player and he's also not a stupid person right who you're gonna trick so like this idea that biden could fire powell and then get through the senate a fed staff that would do things that congress would never authorize like that doesn't make sense right so if you're in a different world right if you had a firm you know like green consensus in the legislature yeah um then would you how much would you need the fed to do. Like you could just be passing laws to finance these things. Now, maybe you would want a Fed role. I mean, the, you know, Elizabeth Warren gave the Fed a role in consumer financial protection and she had her reasons for that, um, yep. but she passed a law, right? Yep. I mean, that, right. that, that, that's, right. that's the point, right? She, right. she, do, she wasn't just like Ben Bernanke, go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and how well the CFPB holds up over time is going to have a lot to do with, like, is there political consensus behind it or isn't it? Um, Wealth inequality, I think, is closer to the Fed's mission. I mean, you can't, it's a relevant macroeconomic 
variable. And you can't, I, I think if you're doing monetary policy, you can't just like pretend that you don't see that monetary policy is an impact on asset prices. Um, that would be a, a weird way of looking sure. at what's happening. Um, so, you know, you have to take it into, into consideration. I, I am personally think that you would get very bad policy outcomes if the Fed was constantly trying to make asset prices low because low asset prices reduces inequality. Sure. I mean, like it's yeah. true though yeah. that like you could do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so I don't think they could just say like, well, that's outside of our mandate. I just like, I would challenge people who want the Fed to combat wealth inequality to think about what that would mean in Absolutely. practice. Um, severe recessions reduce wealth inequality <laughs> right. quite sharply. Right. Um, it, they're just really bad. Right. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, on the racial issues, right? I mean, I think you get a similar issue that the, the, someone at the, at the New York Fed put out a research note on this. And, you know, it was saying, well, stimulative monetary policy, it has a small impact on closing um, racial gaps in the labor market, but it increases the racial wealth gap because stock prices go up. Um, to me, that's like it's obvious what choice you would want to make, right? That yeah. like in the robust labor market, uh, people are better off, whereas in the weak labor market, they're worse off. Right. Um, to say, but but I mean, again, I mean, it, it's not wrong to ask the Fed to run the math on these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but I actually think that like the clearest um, sense of like an extra quote unquote mission is that you see a reduction in the racial gap in labor market outcomes when um, labor, uh, when labor markets are tighter, right? And it's not like the Fed's job, quote unquote, to fight um, labor market discrimination, right? But yeah. we we see that that is a result, right? That I mean, yeah. it's a classic like Gary Becker thing, right? But like in a competitive market, um, discriminators will be disfavored. But right. to have competitive labor markets, you need reasonably full employment, and so I don't think that's like different from the Fed's yeah. existing dual mandate. And also like, there's a reason why like Bayard Rustin and Coretta Scott King and, and stuff were very yes. involved in, in full employment yes. policy. It's just that it's a, it's a directly relevant um, consequence of their core mission. And it's something that um, civil rights leaders in the 60s and 70s were very cognizant of. And that sort of fell out of, um, it fell, I don't want to say it fell off their radar personally, but yeah. it institutionally fell off the radar um, over the, the course of the 80s and 90s. Um, and it's good to have it sort of back in the in the mix, but it isn't actually like a separate variable from the the other ones. Um, mm. You know, it, it, it was the March on Washington for Jobs and Justice, um, yep. which yep. is yep. not a solely monetary conversation, sure. obviously, but it's like, it's not, not a monetary policy conversation. Um, and that's just enduringly relevant. And I think was part of the positive motivation. I feel like I was very critical of fate earlier. Um, but in terms of like, on a higher order level, like why did they want to rethink things? Yeah. That was an important um, realization. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're gonna take things really theoretical now. And I, and I wanna give you just open floor to, to think out loud about Fed governance mm -hmm. um, amendments. Like, you know, if at any time, you know, we've had these two big scandals, reserve bank presidents resigning and, 
and uh, you know big ethics uh, investigation happening mm-hmm. and new rules and and all sorts of stuff. Um, seems like there is a little bit of momentum, although there's also a lot of other things that are distracting people in <laughs> yes. in, in Congress to, to to make any kind of changes to the Fed. So I don't know if I necessarily expect anything to come through in that. Uh, but if they were to open the open the books and and go back through it. You know, tell me, talk to me about uh, about what your thoughts are about kind of the the structure and FOMC makeup and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it obviously it doesn't make sense. Like the yeah, <laughs> very weird structure of the FOMC with the yeah. like some regional banks are on one third of the time and some are on half of the time, and like the Cleveland Fed is like six counties and the <laughs> the San Francisco Fed is half the country. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it, it offends my uh, desire for things to have an orderly and tidy logic. I would be a little hard pressed to say that there's like a large practical problem here. Okay. Um, okay. I did feel, you know, uh, during the sort of like Obama years and, and the Great Recession years, um, I felt like Fed policy was too hawkish and that the regional presidents were on the hawkish side of the debate. So I always wanted sort of less of them. Yeah. But they weren't uniformly on the, yeah. on the hawkish side of the debate. Some good stuff came out of Chicago and uh, Minnesota during those times. Yeah. Um, and more to the point, um, o- Obama never like energetically filled Fed vacancies with mm-hmm. doves, um, mm-hmm. nor has... Biden. So like the hypothetical situation in which like Washington is like trying to do something mm-hmm. and the regional Fed presidents are holding them back, like that, that's not something that's ever actually happened in, in practice. So I don't, I don't totally discount it. Like yeah. I do think that like fundamentally um, it should be directed by the elected officials in Washington yeah. and that people's voting power should make some kind of sense. Yeah, um, sure. And then if you're going to have a decentralized structure, it should be um, not as <laughs> two, two banks in Missouri. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, but it's, it's also like, it's, it's not what I would sweat, you know, sure. if it was up to me. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. Um, Okay, so we've we've covered uh, a lot of stuff um, here, and and as we wrap up, I think the the I guess the last question will be, you know, there's an idea going around that I think I've gotten, um, I think I agree with mostly, and that is that the next year or so may be make an outsized impact on the direction of uh, of the Fed for the next decade or or two. Um, compared to a 12 or 18 month period um, in a different 12 or 18 month period. Um, do you think that's right? Um, do you think the next 18 months or is it just one of those things where is, is that just a kind of out of recency bias is the right thing or, you know, that what's going to matter matters now? No, I mean, it feels important. I mean, there, there's a lot of vacancies, right? Okay. So there, yep. could, there, could, there could be big change in personnel. We have a new doctrine. It, I would say, has actually succeeded incredibly spectacularly on one <laughs> level. I mean, we have just gotten a much more robust recovery than we got yeah. in the Great Recession, right? Like it has gone great yeah. on that level. At the same time, they've blown through their own inflation forecasts. Everybody's mad. The president is super unpopular. Yeah. Um, if, you know, the lineup gets filled with people who support Powell and Powell's trajectory, and then if 
it all works out in the end, right? Say oil prices, they don't need to go down. They just stagnate for a right. year because production ramps up. But then the comparison year gets much more favorable and that commodity stuff goes away. Right. And you have still some cost pressure, but it's driven by higher pay for you know service sector and retail workers and you have more transition you know everybody is shifting into amazon's uh you know no checkout line grocery yep. stores right yep. i mean you you I, I you you can see a way in which we like bust through to a really good outcome everybody's yeah. vindicated there's like a whole <laughs> new crew and it's like this is great um but you could also see things really falling off the rails um if we get you know another month of inflation coming in above where the forecast was and everybody sitting around being like, well, do these clowns even know what they're doing? Um, we haven't yet seen, um, because Republicans want to run against Biden, they have not really leaned on Powell um, in a way that has been sort of uh, fortunate for, for him. Yeah. Um, you know, but there can, th things could get dicey. Right. Um, yeah. If things if things keep coming in ahead of forecast, and you could have um, uh, you know change that's important to like the Fed's standing and stature in the Absolutely. system and its relationship uh, with with various things, and particularly if um, Biden tries to put a new chair in at this time of. Um, uh, I would say a delicate moment yeah. um, in yep. the Fed's trajectory, particularly because I mean, the most, I'm not saying this is, would be a good idea, sure. but like if you were to get rid of Powell, the most natural thing to do would be to replace him with someone who's much more hawkish, mm. right? Mm. To bring somebody in from the outside to just like make Powell the scapegoat. Yeah. And say like I'm bringing in this this new person who's gonna like set things straight, right? And even like tell Joe Manchin like vote for my bbb bill like we're gonna we're gonna crush inflation with with whomever um that doesn't appear to me to be what is under consideration at all i don't think that would be a good idea um right. but trying to swap out powell for someone who is like Lil brainerd who's yep. followed his lead on monetary policies but is perceived as more progressive on some other issues um that just feels like you'd be throwing a grenade at congress yeah. uh, for basically no reason Absolutely. i mean i i i, I like leo brandard a lot i yeah. felt like she deserved um to get the treasury secretary job that she sure. wanted being spiked for i think um she will either get that job or will be fed chair someday sure. um, but it would be weird given what's happening right now to pick that particular political fight with so little like real upside you know yes. other than personalities and and things like that um so it's a it's an interesting moment i mean i don't think we've ever it, even trump's uh weird fed stuff um <laughs> in a way it didn't feel to be like the stakes were all that high no. you know when no. when he swapped out Yellen for powell i mean i had people in my office were like oh my god what's happening and i was like i don't know i talked to people it's it's actually not that big of a deal yep. Yep. um yep. but but now things the stakes do feel higher now yeah well that's where uh that's where we'll wrap it then high stakes important year uh i will uh we'll meet back in in 2030 in whatever state podcasts are in at that uh, at that stage <laughs> um thank you thank you matt thanks so much for coming on thank you thank you have a good day
you can find Matt at uh, Matt Iglesias on Twitter. Uh, you should also subscribe to his newsletter at slowboring.com. Uh, and you can get his latest book, One Billion Americans, uh, wherever they're sold. I'm on Twitter at Caleb Nygaard. Until next time, thanks for listening.